Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hey everyone, it's Ben. Hey, it's Russell. Today on the show, we've got Craig DiMartino. Craig's love of climbing began 22 years ago. However, after an accident in 2002, through a miscommunication with his partner, he was dropped 100 feet to the ground. Craig suffered shattered right and left heels, a broken back that had to be fused for three levels, shattered ankles, a broken neck, ribs, punctured lung, and a rare nerve disorder called RSD brought on by the trauma. After multiple surgeries, Craig chose to amputate his shattered right leg below the knee in hopes of returning to climbing and getting his life back. In an incredible comeback, Craig has broken numerous records in adaptive climbing. Among them, Craig was the first amputee to climb the nose, the front part of El Capitan in Yosemite, 3,100 feet in 13 hours. Craig is a member of USA Climbing, a five-time gold medal winner in the Extremity Games, and a bronze medalist in the Paraclimbing World Championships. Craig is a volunteer for Paradox Sports, who specialize in getting disabled people back outside through adaptive climbing clinics. Craig, before we get started, tell us a little about you personally. Oh, thanks you guys for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I'm, I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I guess I, and I started climbing. I was, uh, I was a lot younger. I was just out of college and so didn't really know where that was going to go, but then ended up meeting my wife through climbing and that kind of ended up becoming this really great climbing partnership that we started and then got married and we now have two kids who are, um, well, they're both teenagers now, which is really terrifying, um, but it's, it's fun and exciting and we live in Loveland, Colorado, which is kind of near Fort Collins on the, the front range of Colorado and um, we all kind of climb together and love being outside together and, and just uh, having a good time. Great. Yeah. When I was a kid, I somehow had this father who was a professional rock climber and mountaineer, so I didn't really have a choice uh, whether I was going to like climbing or not. And I, <laughs> I happened to be scared of heights. So it was actually pretty funny with this super extreme dad. And then I get in and then somehow the gene skipped a generation. Did you ever find yourself being scared as a kid? You know, what's really weird is like when I started climbing, well, kind of before I started I, my dad was is really terrified of heights. Like he he can't he doesn't do well at all. And uh, so I just kind of assumed as a kid, you know that that's probably a good thing. You should probably be afraid of that. So I always kind of thought I was afraid of heights. And then I oddly enough started climbing at a bachelor party. Uh, a buddy of mine got married right out of college, and we went. Uh, you know, and so instead of going to the strip club kind of stuff, he was like, "Hey, we're gonna go rock climbing." And so this is in you know, Pennsylvania, which not known for its rock climbing. And we went to this just scrappy little cliff outside Philadelphia and um, went climbing. And I remember, you know, climbing up a little bit thinking, okay, sooner or later, this whole height thing's going to kick in and I'm going to be terrified. And it never did. And so I remember thinking that weird shift of, like you just said, the gene must have skipped in, in somehow. And I really enjoyed it. And I remember talking to my dad about it. And my dad was just like, beside himself just couldn't understand how you could actually enjoy being high up in the air so you were really hooked after that what do you love about climbing it was weird that day i was not 
like a sports kid, you know, like I, my brother was a really good football player and I was just always kind of the kid who was good at art in school, you know? So they had my brother who was like making all these huge gains in football and ended up playing college football. And then they had Craig who was, you know, good at art and liked to be alone. And it was kind of funny for them, I think. And so when I started climbing, it was this immediate click in my head that made sense. And like, all, I wasn't really great at it when I started, but it, out of any sport that I had tried, and I tried all the sports as a kid, you know, because my parents wanted me to be involved in sports, I it, none of them made sense to me. It just I just didn't understand it and wasn't good at any of them. And when I climbed the first time, it just it kind of made sense, and every piece of it made sense to me. And so I just felt this kind of drive, this passion, where I wanted to explore it and just learn about it and know all the facets of it and. I had really never had that before in any sport. So that's that's kind of what drew me in. And, you know, now 22, 23 years later, I still am kind of fascinated by it. I don't get bored doing it. I love all the different ways we can do it. And I love all the places it takes you and, and the uh, kind of the adventure of it. I want to go to the day when the incident occurred. You've been rock climbing for around 10 years before this happens? Yeah, like uh, probably more like like 13-ish, 13 you know, 12, years. something like that, yeah. And now is this a routine climb that you were doing? We went up to do something, you know, that was fairly routine for us at the time. We were, my friend and I, Steve, were climbing up in Rocky Mountain National Park all the time that year. And he and I climbed together for many years beforehand. And so we were very, very comfortable with each other. And so when we hiked in, he had one route in particular he wanted to try, but uh, he didn't want to lead it. So in, in climbing vocabulary, leading means one of us has to go first and <clears throat> kind of attach the rope at the top of the climb. And so he said, you know, I don't want to lead it. So you, you lead it, but I think it's a pretty cool climb you'll like, and it's well within your ability level. You'll, it'll be a good challenge. And so, you know, we got back there and there's about four miles back in uh, the back country where we were. Um, and we were at a place called Lumpy Ridge, which is kind of near the town of Estes Park but way back up in the park. So we were kind of, you know, excited and nervous, but, you know, kind of that good nervous, not the bad nervous, just like I'm, I'm excited to try this. And one of the things we did and just one of the things that kind of led up to what happened was climbers are big on communication. And I think when you're climbing with someone on a regular basis, you get very comfortable with that communication. And so you don't always use the, we have belay commands and, and we call them commands just because it's it's a way of, easily understanding what your partner is going to do and what you're supposed to do in return. And so when we walked in, a very common term we use is top rope. And top rope means that the the lead climber will go first. He'll attach the rope at the top of the climb through an anchor and then be lowered to the ground. And then you belay. And the belay is when you belay the rope. Uh, The rope runs through a belay device, which kind of keeps your partner from falling. So when they fall, you catch them on your belay device. Mm. And so... Those three terms move kind of around each other all the time. And so as we walked in, he said, you know, I'd like to top rope this climb. Now, I never really thought I should probably ask him what he means by that, because, again, that's a very common term that we use. And in my idea, in my mind, what I just described to you was what was going to happen. I was going to lead it, get it ready and then lower to the ground. And then I would belay Steve from the ground while he climbed it again. And so... When I took off up the climb, that's what I was expecting to happen. And so when I got to the top of the route, which was 100 feet tall, I was up on a ledge, a small kind of 
horizontal shelf that was about three inches wide by about six inches or six feet long. And there were three bolts driven into the rock, which climbers put in as anchors and very normal anchor. And I clipped into that anchor. And again, one of the terms we use all the time is off belay, which means now I'm clipped into the rock and I'm safe. So you don't have to belay me anymore. You can kind of do what you need to do. And so when I clipped into the anchor, I yelled down to him that I was off belay. Steve heard that and he went, uh, he took me off belay and went and got his shoes out of his backpack, which totally normal thing to do because obviously he's going to need his climbing shoes. And I was thinking this whole time, okay, so I'm going to get it ready to lower I'm going to be lowered to the ground, so I'm just getting the anchor nice and neat and making sure everything's working right. And once, you know, once it looked the way it should, I checked it once more, and then I yelled down to him. And this is kind of where everything gets a little sideways. Um, I said, okay, Steve, all you. Now, when he heard that, what he was thinking for top roping was he was going to come up to the anchor with me, and then we would rappel off together mm. and lower ourselves down the lines, the ropes kind of together. And that is another way to top rope. It's not the conventional top roping system, but again, it would work fine. We didn't communicate that and, and didn't clarify that. And so he heard me say, okay, all you, and he thought, oh, great, you know, Craig's ready to bring me up to the ledge. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't tied into the rope yet, so he just yelled up, okay, good, thinking, okay, Craig's now going to put me on belay and get ready to bring me up. So I couldn't see him. It was a very steep climb. And... um so I heard, okay, good. And I thought, oh, you know, Steve's ready to lower me to the ground. And so I kind of looked at the anchor one more time just to make sure it was going to run smoothly. I pulled in, unclipped from the anchor, and just sat back and started to fall the entire way. Wow. wow. You said you were 100 feet off the ground? Yeah, my feet, they actually, because I got hurt and, you know, they had to do an accident report, they actually measured it. So my feet were standing almost right at a hundred feet. Wow. So my head was, you know, 106 feet or 105 feet. But yeah, my, when my feet came off the ledge, I started at a hundred and just started falling the whole distance. My previous experience with people falling from ledges, even like a 40 foot fall can be deadly. And you go all the way up to a hundred feet. I don't even know anyone that's even survived that. Yeah. I read this basic rule and it says, I think this is also in your book, Craig, the basic rule is if you fall 10 feet, you have a 10% chance of dying, 20% chance at 20 feet, 30 at 30, and so on. I'd fall in 100 feet. Yeah. And I, my, my buddy, Steve, knew that same formula. And, you know, he said when he saw me coming, as I was falling, when, when I started to get speed, like I knew something wasn't right. And, you know, that initial fall, you're like, okay, there's just a lot of slack in the system. Mm -hmm. and I, yeah. And that's really what I thought. And then I realized, you know, now something's not right. And I pushed and that got me away. I wanted to see where I was going to. And that pushed me away and tipped me over. Mm -hmm. And so Steve said, you know, as I was falling, I was kind of horizontal. And he, you know, he's looking at that happening. He saw me, he heard me about halfway through the fall and he looked up. And by the time he even looked up, I was about 30 or so feet from the ground. And I kind of slammed into a tree that was at the base with my head and it, oh. the that, well, that was a good thing, actually. Typically, you'd be like, ah, it's bad. But in this case, it was good because what it did was it stood me back up. And it got me hmm. into a position where if you're going to hit the ground from 100 feet, if you're standing, you actually have a better chance of surviving because hmm. that shockwave has somewhere to go. Um, the yeah. bad thing is if you land standing, you know, you your feet just explode. And, and that's what happened is wow. both my feet exploded. And Steve, I, I actually landed right near Steve. I mean, he 
he didn't walk far away, you know, and he saw the whole thing happen as I came through the tree and then hit the ground. And, you know, the tree also probably slowed me down a, a small amount, but, you know, he knew all that information in his head too. He was like, oh my gosh, he just came from about a hundred feet. You know, you're not going to survive that kind of a fall. You said your feet exploded. What happens after that? You go to the hospital and what kind of injuries did you actually have? So when I hit the ground, I hit standing and basically my the talus and the calcaneus is basically that's your heel and the bone above your heel that join it into the ankle and your tibia. Um, I exploded those and I had compound fractures of those. So they basically mm-hmm. came out the inside of my ankles. Um, both the bones came out the inside and were hanging out. I severed the artery in my right leg. So I was bleeding really Ooh. badly. And yeah, so then that shockwave just kind of travels up your your body. And so that's compressed my spine and shattered and crushed L2, which is kind of right through your belly button. And it, I actually collapsed it that I don't even have it anymore. That's what they ended up having to fuse in my back was the they pull your spine apart and put a bone bridge in there. And then they fused me for those three levels. And then the shockwave just kept going and broke my ribs and punctured the lung on my right side and then broke my neck at C6, which is kind of right through your Adam's apple and hurt my, tore my uh, shoulder, my, the rotator cuff of my shoulder as well and broke my elbow, the pads in your elbow, the kind of the bursa sacs, which is the, the fluid in your elbow broke those. And then I just kind of crumpled over to my right into the, the talus blocks, which are these big, just blocks of granite that have, you know, fallen off the cliff over the, the years. Oh. And, you know, so you're just kind of, crumpled and bleeding in this pile of rocks and steve is then trying to figure out okay what do we do and once he figured that out and got a plan going that's when the the rescue began and they moved me to to the helicopter to the hospital before we talk about the rescue i just want to visualize what's going through your head when you start falling 100 feet do you remember that going away from the anchor is a really vivid memory of mine just watching it you know, going away very quickly and you know that you're falling. And, you know, I should say like climbing and falling go hand in hand. Like if you're trying new routes and you're trying hard routes, you fall all the time. And so as a climber, you're used to falling, but there's a difference when you fall on a rope while you're climbing and there's a difference than coming off of an anchor and knowing you're falling because you shouldn't ever be falling from an anchor. That's not something that happens. Whereas the other kind of falling, you're very used to that. There's ways to do that safely. And we, we practice that all the time. You know, we mitigate risk, but this was a wholly different feeling. I mean, this was me gathering a great deal of speed very quickly from the anchor. And I knew something wasn't right. You're in trouble. Yeah. yeah, You, you know, okay, this just got sideways. And so the push off is actually like a safety mechanism too. just, you want to see where you're going. You want to see if you're going to hit a ledge or swing into a corner or, you know, there's all these hazards that you don't want to hit and so pushing away is a good thing to get away from the cliff but it's also bad because it tips you over and Mm. the last thing I remember is probably when I started to tip I don't remember tipping but I remember looking up and watching that anchor go fast and all of a sudden then the next memory I have is Steve was in my peripheral vision just yelling at the top of his lungs it at my face and I don't remember what he was yelling, but he was very, very agitated and he was just screaming. I think he thought I was dead and I had been out for maybe 10 seconds, not even. And so I was back and just this amazing sense of confusion because 
now I'm looking up at the climb I was just on. And you just, you're, it's almost like your brain doesn't wrap around it. Your brain is like, what the heck just happened? Like, why am I on the ground when I should be up there? And you just don't, I was just immediately confused. And then quickly followed that by this searing pain in my back. That was really the only pain I had was just this really bad back pain. It felt like there was a rock just jammed up inside my back. In your book, After the Fall, you have a quote that says, I've thought a lot about the simple and tiny little things I could have done differently at that moment. Do you find yourself reflecting back upon that? I do. You you kind of, I think the first like couple years after it, like where you're kind of getting back to your life, you, I, I kind of went through the accident, you know, thousands of times in my head, you know, you just always like, well, what if I had done this? And what if I had done that? And for Steve and I just, the both of us needed to get to this place where we, we would talk about it all the time, just like, okay, why did it happen? What happened? And once I got to the place where I just realized, okay, this was a, a bunch of small miscommunications that led to this really big tragic accident once I got to that place it was kind of a healthy thing to do it was it was just like okay you know what yeah I should have double checked this and he should have double checked that but it really wasn't like this one horrific you know he just took me off the lane and walked away and didn't tell me and you know and I thought he had me you know that wasn't like that it was just this snowball effect that happened and then ended in this bad accident but once I got to that place, I think I stopped replaying it so much in my head and kind of just was able to move past it and say, okay, it happened. And, you know, now what do I need to do to move forward? It's just incredible that you survived this. And then what's even more incredible is how you've transformed after this accident. I read that it only took you three months after the incident to actually start climbing again with your leg being amputated. Is that right? Yeah, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, I guess. <laughs> I tried to climb with, before I amputated, I tried to climb again just to kind of, just to see if I liked it still. You know, I mean, I had done it so much, very passionately and loved it. And all of a sudden it, it you know, had this really bad accident. And so while I still had my leg, I kind of went back. I was still in a cast and Cindy and I took the kids up to Wild Iris up in Wyoming and we went climbing. I wasn't going to climb. I was just kind of there just to be outside again and just be around it and see what I thought of it. And my daughter did this route this, and I belayed her on it and she lowered to the ground after she did it. She just looked at me very innocently and said, you know, are you going to try to climb it? And she caught me off guard and I wasn't ready and I didn't have a ready excuse or anything. So I was like, well, yeah, you know, I'll give it a go. And I had glued, uh, again, not the sharpest knife. I had glued climbing rubber on my cast all over the cast, just thinking, you know, if I want to try, I'll just give it a go with this boot on. And so I tied in and climbed this route. And it was, you know, this very easy 40 foot route that just literally terrified me. I was so just absolute terror climbing it. And, you know, I got to the anchor and here I am at another anchor that I had fallen from very similar. And it took me what felt like an eternity just to sit down in my harness and be lowered to the ground again. And, you know, just all that angst comes back and fear came back in a big way and Cindy was there and so she was able to talk to me the sound travels really well at the cliff and so she's kind of calmed me down at the anchor and I lowered down and I just thought okay you know maybe I shouldn't be doing this again and I kind of did that process over and over over that year that I kind of decided what I was going to do with my leg as well and and then once I amputated 
it took like three months. You have to obviously learn to walk again and figure out how your body works. And once I got through that, I had, I had climbed a couple times again and felt like, okay, I do want to, I do want to climb again. I don't think I'm going to climb like I did before, but I'll you know, still do it as just kind of a hobby thing. And that was about, yeah, about the three month mark. I was kind of back out feeling fairly comfortable again and climbing, not anything hard or any, but just being back out with Cindy or being back out with friends and just kind of just enjoying it again and just realizing, okay, it's not going to kill me. It's just something I love to do and just kind of rekindling that passion again. I know that climbing can be very safe if you have the proper education and sufficient experience to do the types of routes that you'll be doing. But how has your perception changed being a father, knowing that there are risks climbing? You know, when we had kids right off the bat, Cindy and I were both like, well, you know, climbing can be dangerous, but, you know, we'll do everything in our power to mitigate that risk. And we don't you know, we don't want to stop doing what we love doing because we have kids. If anything, we want to share this you know, with them. And so I don't know that I ever looked at it and said, uh, you know, because I have these guys now, I have to be super, super careful because if anything, I, you know, after the accident, I realized, you know, gosh, you can be the most educated person in the room with climbing and you can know the risks and you can do everything in your power. But at the end of the day, accidents can still happen. And I'm living proof of that, that, you know, even when you have two very experienced climbers, things can happen. And we've lost friends in the mountains and we've lost friends climbing and they've been very safe, practical individuals. Some of them were parents and you realize, you know what, you, you really have very little control over these things. And so for us with the kids, it's always been, you know, we want you to do this. We want you to be as careful as you can and we're going to still do it. And dad's going to go do these climbs and mom's going to climb with other people and we're going to be as safe as we can. But you know, there are risks involved, but there are risks involved in driving as well. And so, Mm. you know, you you try to weigh those things and mitigate them the best you can and do the best you can with it. Absolutely. That's a great point. So when you get your prosthetic leg, what does that feel like when you first climb? (laughs) It's, um, it is a definite learning curve. The first couple times out with it, you, you know, you obviously can't feel it. And so you're, you're putting it on edges and putting it in cracks and trying to figure out how it all works. And prosthetics go figure. They're not made for people who want to rock climb. Um, They're made for, to make you ambulatory. That's what they're there for. And so early on I realized, okay, the prosthetic as it's made is not really going to do what I need it to do. And so what do I, how do I like, you know, how do I figure it out and reinvent that wheel? And I work with these great guys um, here in Colorado who, just very open and he makes my legs and he and I kind of started just drawing on a napkin and he said, well, what's going to work best? And we didn't really know. There weren't a lot of, you know, this was 12 years ago now. Um, there weren't a lot of one-legged climbers that I could ask. And so a couple guys I talked to and they had some great ideas and we kind of traded ideas back and forth and ended up making this leg that I thought would work. Not that it would work really well, but just would be functional, that I could get back out and climb again. And so it was just a process of learning, okay, what does it feel like? How does it work best? And what what are its limitations? And then kind of make something that worked. And then that worked for a while. And then we redesigned and redesigned. And we've kind of gotten to the point now where I have a leg that is pretty predictable for me. Like I can put it on certain things and know that it's going to stick onto an edge. Um, I have to climb by sight. And by that, I mean, I just when I have to put my foot somewhere, I have to look at where I'm putting it because not only can I not feel the prosthetic, but the other foot that I kept, 
um, I can't really feel that foot so good. Uh, I damaged a lot of the nerves in the fall. And when they put all the bones back in there and fixed them with like screws and things that I just have nerve issues down there. And so it's like, I'm always looking at my feet now. So when I'm placing them, I look at them and it's actually kind of helped my climbing, I think, because it's made me think a lot more. I've, I, I used to just kind of bull my way through stuff and muscle my way. Whereas getting hurt actually taught me, Oh, okay. I actually have to use some technique now. And try to be a better climber instead of just kind of force my way through it. You have become just a visual learner, I guess. I, I, I can't even rock climb <laughs> like with feeling things under my feet. How do you, you're looking down at your feet and you can see your foot in a crack. You almost know what that feels like just because you've seen it so many times before. Right. And I had that information in my brain from before I lost my leg that, okay, that's going to feel this particular way. And so I know when I stick the prosthetic in a crack, I know, okay, if I cam my knee over to the left or the right, it's going to stick in there better. And I know what that feels like. And so visual learner is actually a really good way to say that because you look at something and you go, and, and what I've learned to read is, is crack climbing is pretty straightforward. But when you start to put your feet on edges, you rely a lot on feel. And so what I've learned is like, okay, when I put the prosthetic on an edge that is, you know, the width of a nickel, it will stick. But if I try to put it on something the width of a dime, it won't stick on there very long. It'll be on there a short amount of time. And so you just trial and error. You're like, okay, here's where it works really good. And here's where it doesn't work so good. So that visualization actually becomes a really great tool for climbing. You learn to climb better because you realize, okay, these are the limitations. And I know what those limitations kind of look like now. Wow. It's almost like you're some sort of superhuman that has this extra sensory in it. It's just crazy. <laughs> <is> fascinating. Um, <laughs> Lose a leg, gain some in <laughs> Yeah. <right. laughs> uh, so you're involved with Paradox Sports. How has that community of other disabled, adaptive athletes helped you grow? They kind of were this great group of people. Like I said, when I went back into climbing, there weren't a lot of one-legged people that I could ask. And so you're kind of just bumbling around in the dark trying to figure stuff out. And Paradox came out of the, the idea that, look, there are these people who were hurt and injured and want to go back and do these sports that most people say you shouldn't do anymore. You know, So if you're a disabled person, you, know, you don't go rock climbing. That, that's dumb. Like Nobody does that. So Timmy O'Neill, who is a, a really good friend, and this other gentleman, DJ Skelton, came up with this idea, uh, Timmy's brother is a paraplegic. And so Timmy has this very soft heart for disabled people because his brother's disabled. And he thought, you know, I want my brother to be able to live this full life. And so being in a wheelchair doesn't mean you can't live a full life. And losing a limb doesn't mean you can't live a full life. And so they came up with this idea that, hey, let's group these people together and teach each other and help each other. And when I heard about it, I just thought, oh my gosh, that's a great idea because that's what I needed. I didn't have that. And I really value that kind of information. We've become this volunteer organization that's based out of Boulder. And we do these clinics. We teach people to climb again. We teach them to kayak and uh, stand up paddleboard, really whatever they want to do, we'll help them do it. So if you've lost your limb and you want to find out what it feels like to go rock climbing, we'll take you climbing and teach you how to climb. If you want to learn these other sports, we'll help you do that. And take that idea that a disabled person can't do these things and just say, no, you can, you can do them. You just have to do them differently and let us help you figure that out. 
The programs just seem really fun. I'm in New England. What do I do in New England as opposed to uh, you being all the way out in Colorado? We do clinics all over the country. Um, there is an ice climbing clinic in the Adirondacks, and yeah. we also do a rock climbing weekend in the Gunks, which is in New Paltz, New York. Nice. So we kind of do clinics wherever we can get in with a, a larger population area um, because we just have more success with that because there's usually you know just more disabled folks there. Hmm. So, Craig, when I hear that you have a bunch of injuries to your leg, my first thought is, okay, if he's still climbing, his upper body needs to be very strong. I would imagine that's where most of your strength is. And I'm looking at these pictures of you. Your forearms are enormous. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure they're bigger than your biceps. (laughs) (laughs) You use the same muscle groups all the time. So your hands and your forearms end up getting kind of more defined than the rest of you. And I just think... The more you climb, the more you learn, like you have to use your whole body. Like I've just, like I said, I used to bull my way through everything. And I realized you can only go so far on your arms and then your legs have to do something. So I've learned, uh, I hope, climb smarter now um, and use more technique. And that's what we always try to teach new climbers too, is like if I'm teaching someone who's never climbed before, they think you have to do pull-ups the whole time. And it's, it's just not like that. It's more the more you can use your whole body, the, the better off you are. We'll have pictures and videos of these on our website. What's your body fat percentage? <laughs> I went in for this weird checkup and the lady was, it was actually kind of funny because she said, well, we have to measure your body fat. I'm like, oh, that's great. I've always wondered what that was. And she negative, tried to negative it, 5%. But she, it wouldn't read. And so she's like, <laughs> I don't know what your body fat is. She's like, it means you're under 2%, whatever wow. that is. And a buddy of mine trains, I train with him and he was like, you know, that's not good, right? Like that's not healthy at all. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not trying to do that. It's just how I eat. And I think because we're so active, it's just kind of burns through stuff. These competitions, are they just like a huge group at the extremity games of really, really shredded disabled people just hanging out, having the best time ever? Yeah, it's there's some amazing athletes out there who are disabled. And I look at them and they just blow me away. I mean, some of them are so in shape. I mean, that's what they do. And they call it the hard luck lottery. So a lot of them win the hard luck lottery, meaning they get wrecked in an accident, then they come back and they, they have some kind of kind of a second life where they're just like, okay, you know what? I was doing this thing before, but I realized that's stupid. Now I'm going to just throw myself at these this activity or whatever it is and make it my living. And they end up getting super fit and super just very motivational. And, and they, they inspire me to great lengths because I look at them and I think, oh my gosh, you know, I've met guys... I met this guy, gosh, this was a couple years ago now, but he um, he passed out on these train tracks drunk and got run over by a train. So oh my God. both, yeah, I know, both his legs got cut off and one of his arms. So he like, he had his arm over his head and his feet were over the tracks. And so the train runs over him, oh. but the train train was so heavy, he didn't bleed and it was cauterized right away. So I meet him at this climbing comp and he is just stoked and I'm, and he walks up to me and he's, he's like, you're the climber guy. And I'm like, yeah. And I, I looked at him and blurted out. I'm like, what happened to you? Like, where are your limbs, man? And he just, <laughs> he just starts laughing and he's like, oh, dude. And he tells me the story and I'm like, so what are you doing now? And he's like, oh my gosh, man. He's like, well, I really want to learn to rock climb, but right now I'm going to wakeboard in a competition. The dude wakeboarded wow. with one arm and I'm like looking at him thinking, Ah, I was feeling a little down, but <laughs> I guess I'm just fine. So 
have fun. And we shook hands, we shook hand, whatever. And, um, <laughs> and he just traipsed off his little way and did his thing. And I mean, I'm like, you, I meet guys like that all the time where you're just, they're on fire. They're just like, you know, something bad happened. I was doing this thing and, and, and I'm, I'm very much the same way. I was kind of living my life a particular way, I think. And then you go through something like this and you go, ah, you know what? Here's what I think is important. Here's what I want to put value in and my effort in. That's what I'm going to do. You know, it's so inspiring to see and to hear how positive everybody is. And it's really motivating. One quote that I really like goes like this. True inspiration and growth only comes from adversity and challenge. So you obviously have lived that. And if you could go back to the incident, and I'm sure you've thought about this, would you change anything? You know, that's one of the questions I get all the time. And I wouldn't, I really, I wouldn't change any of it. I wouldn't change where I'm sitting today. I wouldn't change any of it. If it hadn't happened, you know, I would have gone down my life and, you know, we would have raised our kids and done what we were doing. And it probably would have been fine. But I think after the accident and just having seen what I've seen and experienced what I've experienced, you, you gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. And, and it's a very, very good perspective builder. And I think I wouldn't want to trade that for anything. I'm very, very happy with where I am and where I'm going. And I think that the accident was the catalyst for all of that. Amazing to hear that story. And thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. To everybody that's listening, you can find all the links and all the things that we've mentioned today on our website, mtnmeister.com, including Craig's book, After the Fall. We'll have pictures, videos, Craig's shredded forearms, (laughs) (laughs) and information about Paradox Sports. So thank you so much for your time, Craig. Man, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Hey, listeners, if you're still on, probably enjoyed another one of our Mountain Meister podcasts, and uh, we still need some help. There's a very easy and specific way that you can help us. Yes, there is, Russell. Good point. We're going to tell you how and why you should help us. The main reason is that a huge source of growth for podcasts is the iTunes New and Noteworthy section. This is a place where upcoming podcasts within their first eight weeks of launch can be placed based on the number of five-star reviews and downloads that podcast receives. Yeah, and we've heard that it can help grow your podcast almost 300% just in those eight weeks, and that's that's huge. I mean, right now we probably have uh, at least 30,000 listeners. Two. Two, two listeners. Okay, two <laughs> listeners, yeah. So we're looking for a few more, and you know we want to keep spreading the love. So there are really two main drivers and two ways that you can help us, and that's five-star reviews and subscribing to our podcast yeah so if you would be so kind go to itunes press subscribe so you receive our podcast every weekday and go in and leave us a review which is hopefully five stars thanks guys